Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. My name is Ashley, and I will be your host. Today, we are talking to Amy. Amy is a survivor of sex trafficking. She changed her life when she reached out for help from an amazing psychotherapist two years ago. Through that healing process, she discovered a passion to provide a voice for the voiceless through documenting her journey on Instagram, where we found her. She is incredibly open and authentic about the reality of healing from this long-term abuse and recovering from addiction. She now uses art as a creative process for coping with her traumas. In her spare time, she balances her work as the operations manager for an online public school while also managing a degenerative skeletal muscular disease, KFS, and most importantly, finding time to cuddle up to Netflix with a phenomenally kind and patient, loving husband. She is one hell of a woman, you guys, seriously. One of the things that really struck me about Amy's story was that sex trafficking looks nothing like what the picture in my head that comes up when we use that terminology. It very much was happening in a neighborhood like most of suburban America. And I found that to be very eye-opening and an important part of the discussion around addiction and trauma and healing that this type of stuff is going on and it doesn't look the way that many of the media outlets portray it. So I thought that was very helpful. And of course, Amy's journey is really incredible and her willingness to share the details of her therapy have been really fascinating. So I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. All right, episode 11, let's do this. All right, Amy, I'm so grateful that we were able to get in touch with you and that you're here on the program. Welcome. Thank you. I am super excited to be here. I found you through your Instagram, which is at CPTSD Chronicles. Yep. And you talk about your journey through therapy and dealing with post-traumatic stress in the most beautiful way. I love that you always put a trigger warning on the first image and then you you show your writing about it. And I was really moved by you sharing what the journey of therapy and particularly complex PTSD looks like, because I don't think a lot of us know you know, what that looks like. We just know you go into a room with a therapist or you go into a session and then you come out and you're supposed to be better and it, they call it work. <laughs> you know, I mean, not too far off. <laughs> right, I know it's true. It's it's a it's, it feels very mysterious. Like, what are they doing in there? Is it black right. magic? But you have really shown what that's like, and I, I really love that. And I know that a couple of years ago, you got into therapy for this complex trauma that you have from your childhood. You were actually a victim of sex trafficking. So. Talk to us. Um, I want, you know, I want our listeners to hear about your story and 
you know, what, what you actually dealt with. And then let's talk about what you've been doing in therapy and, and what's been working and, and how that's been going. But can you give us a little bit of your background? Sure. I'm uh, happy to do that. So I grew up in uh, Tacoma, Washington, which is just about an hour south of that big city, Seattle. I think it's kind of beautiful that I was right there because our local nickname is Grit City. And um, I think that's really perfect for my tale because it took a lot of grit to get uh, where I am today. Yeah. It was kind of interesting in talking with my therapist. When we first started, she kind of asked about my life before I was even born. And I thought, well, that's a weird ass question. I I don't really know. Um, But the more I kind of dig into it, the more I find it has such deep meaning for me um, because of this world of generational trauma that I'm coming from that's seriously informed my life. So before I was even born, my parents, this is going to sound weird, but they were members of a Catholic cult. So I really, Catholicism isn't a cult in and of itself. Oh. They got into this, you know, local group, which they actually called the group. Um, You know, they ended up tithing their cars and their houses, and they were assigned marriages. And For people who don't know, tithing is where you give money. So you give, they gave their cars to the church and all these different things. Yep. And they had to give all of their excess income. Um, Every little aspect of their life was just controlled to the point where they eventually told my parents that they had to get rid of their family um, and could no longer have contact with them. And that's when my mom kind of drew the line and uh, pulled back a little bit from religion. And it, it stayed a big part of their lives, but they were like, uh, uh, nope, we're not doing that thing. Um, so I come from this very deeply religious kind of messed up background <laughs> of wow. my parents, um, which kind of influenced a lot of what ends up happening in my life. And then about 10 years-ish after they left that, they were super surprised to have me, which I found out last year. My mom actually has a terminal brain tumor, and so it's led to some really interesting conversations in my life of sharing things I probably wouldn't have otherwise heard, which was, you weren't really a wanted baby. And I'm like, oh, that's that's fascinating. (laughs) That actually explains so much. Um, So... She um, wasn't really prepared to have me. And so one of the ways she dealt with her own um, mental health issues and her incapacity to be a mother at that time uh, was to send me over to grandma's, which had a lot of really great moments um, with some family members. But it also kind of tragically enabled my uncle um, to have access to me. And he... Is this uh, your maternal or paternal uncle? Oh, yeah. So it's my maternal uncle, my mom's uh, youngest brother. Okay. And he ended up sexually abusing me uh, from the time I was three. Uh, the last time that he did was when I was 17. So I've got this very long history of complex trauma Uh, between the sexual abuse that was also pretty physically violent, enabled by my family uh, from kind of a religious perspective of it's the woman's fault, uh, you know, even if she's four. Wow. So how did it turn from sexual abuse to trafficking? 
Um, so what kind of started as my uncle molesting me in his bedroom at my grandmother's home where he lived eventually started to include things like him having me watch pornography with him or like through Hustler magazines, which then escalated to him then using that material to inspire our time together. And he began filming um, his sexual abuse of me, um, as well as photographing it, which for a long time, I just thought he had those awful uh, videos and pictures in the back of his closet that I always avoided and just, you know, felt this terrible uh, shame around. And it turned out that he had been selling them to friends and family. And by the time I was probably late five, early six, he decided that he, I'm guessing, this is all kind of ideas because I've never talked to him about it, uh, decided to make some more money off of me, um, as well as, I think, getting something out of further humiliating me. And he took me to a local amusement park one day and met up with a man I'd never met and sold him a tape that I saw him grab out of the back of his closet. And I kind of thought that was going to be the end of that. And we were going to go around having a nice day at the park because it wasn't always just abuse, which is, I think, what kind of makes it hard and challenging yeah. was also to everyone else, which I'm sure helped with the denial, this really great, friendly, outgoing, charismatic character. Right. But that really was, in my perspective, a character that enabled him to do mm. these awful things that were ultimately his goal. And so that day at the amusement park, he ended up selling me um, to the stranger. And I didn't often fight back against him because I learned very quickly that any sort of no was only going to lead to violence in my life or some sort of torture, whether it was emotional or physical. But I was so genuinely terrified at this point. I actually whimpered, you know, no, no, no. And then the sort of violent individual started to come out in a controlled manner at the park. And I just knew that it was going to be better for me if I went with this complete stranger than if I didn't. And so he just let this man uh, take me off into the amusement park. He didn't follow him or anything. So this man could have kidnapped me. He could have killed me in the park. He could have done anything. And I just genuinely have a lot of anger and grief around that right now. And it's actually kind of the topic we're working on in therapy. And when I started to think about how I was going to talk to my therapist about this, you know, there's the, oh, my God, is someone going to believe me? Like, this story right. is so tragic. How can it be real? Like, right. do I even believe myself? Right. It's, uh, it was super difficult. So I took to the Internet, and I was like, I don't even know what to call this because child prostitution to me is not, I mean, it's a term we hear, but I don't think it's legitimate because you aren't choosing to sell yourself as a child, you're being victimized. Right. right. And you're not, you're not, the money's not going to you. I mean, it was so interesting because you and I talked a bit about this, about the trafficking aspect to it and, and how I, you know, I hear on the news or I hear, and I, I see, I see campaigns about trafficking and I, you know, trafficking's going on in your community. And I'm like, how, who, 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 what, what is this happening? And, and, and I was telling you, like, I'm trying to picture 
trafficking. And then I hear your story and I hear about you being sold to this man in the amusement park. And then, and then I know that you were returned to your uncle. So it's like a, it it was a, you know, a a transaction there and it's not pimping someone out, right? It's not because you're not opting into, I mean, it is trafficking. It is sex. You're being sold for sex and then returned. And I, it blew my mind. I mean, on a lot of levels, of course, as a just a human, but it blew my mind like, oh, this is what we're talking about. This is the topic of sex trafficking. This is a topic. It's situations, intergenerational trauma, you know, these crazy situations, access to children. These are going on over a long period of time. They have access to children over a long period of time. And then it happens, you know, this is how it happens. And your story was like, oh, okay. This is the topic. This is what's happening. And and of course it I know that it I know that was just the first time. Yeah. And you have verbalized so well exactly what I was thinking when I took to the internet to search. And I was like, I had this image in my mind of trafficking being, you know, people being brought in from other countries yeah. into the US through, you know, shipping containers yes. or crossed over a border or even people taking advantage of in, you know, groups in America, even if it was in borders, it was always this like distant understanding of people being, you know, moved from one place to another to be sold uh, for any number of reasons. But when I actually went and looked up the definition, it perfectly actually describes my situation, um, which is, you know, the selling of a human being against their will in this case, for sexual purposes. And it just, it hit me like a ton of bricks that, oh my gosh, I'm a trafficking victim. I never thought about it that way. And I don't know anyone in my life who would think about it that way. And I think there's such power in that, like you're saying, of realizing this is going on probably in a lot of neighborhoods or, you know, in proximity to where all of us live. And it's just so tragic, not only the events, but just the lack of information, the lack of resources Mm. and awareness around um, such a difficult topic that affects millions of people across the world all the time. Yeah. Yeah. It really is. It's really eye-opening. We talk a lot about date rape, rape, sexual assault. We talk about, you know, domestic violence. We we talk about these issues and, and it's wonderful in the sense that as we talk about them more, they've become more mainstreamable topics. Sex trafficking, I think, is one of those, still one of those exotic terms. You know, to be honest with you, I've always pictured, you know, kind of you describe it, but it's a foreign issue. Like it's literally for, with foreigners. I, I don't know. And that's, that's my that's my image in my head that comes to mind. And I'm sure that's related to media, you know, images and And one thing I have wondered, you know, is like when people talk about child porn is like, where are they getting this porn? How does this happen? What is this, you know, and, and you're, you're this, this, then you're describing it. And so it really talk, you know, what, what I hear is here's a way to get to the root cause of the problem. Like, how do we stop it? Right. People are catching large amounts of child pornography after it's been filmed and when it's already in a, you know, in a bank of films and it's it's being distributed, right? You know, this is from the ground level and talking about that. And then also treating the victims, the survivors, 
so that we don't perpetuate this intergenerational trauma cycle. That is so huge because your mother, and I know several people in this very situation where one person in the family, typically an older male, abuses like four generations of people. And they're all abused by the same person. And as a result, I mean, I have I have close friends that this has happened. As a result, everyone is silent because everyone has experienced that same brainwashing by that same person. And it sounds like it sounds like that was a lot of of what happened was that your your whole family was complicit. Yeah, there was um, this really challenging incident for me that I worked from that was probably several months before he started to traffic me, which was my younger sister had just turned three. And I was so worried for her because, you know, it had happened to me at three and perfectly logical for a young child, like this is going to happen to her next. And so it started to my grandmother at the time was undergoing chemotherapy treatment for breast cancer. And so my mother's and her brother's half-sister came up to help kind of take care of us at my grandmother's home while my parents would take my grandmother to cancer therapy. Um, And so my uncle decided to do, you know, movie day in the bedroom, let's go hang out, which then led to him trying to corral me into teaching my sister how to be Mm. a good abuse victim. And I was just, you know, paralyzed with fear for her because I already, by the age of five, kind of knew this was going to be my life, but I didn't want that for her. But I also was so accustomed to the violence and so terrified that I, at five, didn't know how to protect her from this. So just begrudgingly went along with it. And so as he had started to have me uh, essentially perform a sexual act on him to demonstrate for my sister. My aunt actually walked into the room and found him. And at first I was just intensely embarrassed and ashamed of the secret that wasn't supposed to be found that I felt so dirty uh, about. And, you know, she screamed at me to get out of the room. Mm -hmm. And, you know, immediately I felt like I had done something wrong. And so I kind of walked to the living room and she like literally drug my uncle out of the room by his ear like he was a child. And so I had this huge like sense of hope well up within me like, oh my gosh, maybe this isn't going to happen to my sister. Maybe this is going to be the last day for me and life is just going to get significantly better because someone finally knows what's going on. And so she ends up chastising my uncle and I'm just sitting there like thank so God you're in the same room with you're in the same room while the chastising is going on yeah so she pulls us out of his room down a hallway to kind of this like kitchen living room area and she holds up the like hustler magazine he was like perusing with us and she starts chastising him for having the pornography and I'm like, okay, so this is the start. She's going to like next lay into right. him about what was going on. And she kind of starts to, and she's like, I can't believe you would do this to, you know, Amy's little sister. Um, that is just so wrong. You can't be doing this to kids anymore. It's not okay. She's too young. And I'm like, okay, okay, here it comes. Like, I'm finally free. But then at this point, she says, you can keep doing this with Amy. She's old enough to figure it out. 
you need to focus your attention on her and no other children. So I kind of became the acceptable abuse victim in the family, which at first when I worked through it, I was so intensely angry and furious at my aunt, which is completely understandable because she essentially condoned the abuse. Yeah, the sacrificial lamb. Yeah, that's exactly, I think, the term I used. Um, Yeah, I mean, that's what it was. It was basically like, okay, we need to contain this guy to one, one child. That's what it sounds like. That's what I'm hearing. Yep, that's exactly it. It was, um, Unreal. I think that's where I found some sense of compa- compassion for my aunt to be able to kind of work through it. It helped me to understand her actions and be able to work through the anger to go. She knew who he was. Like, they grew up with him. Right. Um, I later found out that the exact same acts he did against me, he did to my mother like in weird level of details that actually helped me to finally start to accept that this was real, you know, and she ended up rescuing my sister that day and taking her out of the house, which was excellent for my sister. And I was so very thankful that that happened for her, but it left me in this position where he was now chastised and seen for who he was And I was left in the house alone with him. And so that ended up being the very first time that he raped me was that day. He was just so furious. He drugged me by my hair to the back of his room and assaulted me. And I just remember having this weird out-of-body experience where it just felt like I split into two people and literally saw what was occurring. And it grew into this kind of other part of me that existed um, in voices and thoughts. And for the longest time, I thought I was crazy. And it took me almost, I think, a year to talk to my therapist about it. But for me, this this part, um, who for me is named Scarlett, um, has her own uh, kind of whole identity. Not that I have dissociative identity disorder, I don't, but it's just a sort of structural dissociation that occurred um, as a result of the severe trauma. She helped me survive it. And my uncle ended up like locking me in a box that day because I fought back. And I just remember being in that box and having this um, dissociated part outside the box, being able to calm me at least into sleep to be able to survive and just my parents came up to pick me up that day and obviously was very torn apart and, you know, physically sick and they had to have known something was wrong. Yeah. And, and I mean, from, from what I know of your story, he, if you did not comply, he would frequently waterboard you. So you ended up, your uncle ended up getting you pregnant. Is that right? Yep. So at age nine, My uncle had escalated to this point where he was assaulting me in my grandmother's bathroom when she was either out of the house or taking a nap. And he would essentially waterboard me under a running faucet or as the water rose until I met some specific sick goal he had in mind for that day. Um, And one time it just really went too far and I ended up drowning to the point where I was completely removed from my body and saw myself 
unconscious in the tub with him still assaulting me. And, you know, that sort of bright light cliche Mm. thing going on. And I just thought, oh, my God, I'm dying. Like, it's here. This day I feared for so long is here. And I'm ready to let go. But he became aware of what was happening and ended up having to revive me with CPR. And so that ended up being the last day in my childhood that he sexually abused me. And it was a number of years before it happened again. Uh, But it did happen again a couple of times. So from that point on, he just stuck to harassing me, even in front of my parents and family and friends. And I remember I used to always just hide behind the couch in the living room so I could just be out of sight, out of mind. What do you mean by harassing? Um, So, you know, once I hit puberty, it was, oh, you are really growing a nice rack there. I'd sure like to get my hands on those or, you know, just disgusting (laughs) comments like that. that Unfortunately, too many of us here. And then by the time I was 15, I had completely blacked out this memory, but in pulling out my journals and doing therapy work, he had actually cornered me against a wall at my grandmother's house when other people, you know, were in the kitchen and getting ready for this backyard barbecue and had ended up uh, groping my chest. And I was just so horrified. I, uh, I think I hit him and I freaked out and I took off and just disappeared and went home because my parents lived probably like a half a mile away. So it was easy to get there and, you know, got in trouble for running off from the family barbecue and just kind of ate the getting in trouble. Because if I told them this, I was going to have to tell them (laughs) everything that happened. That was my mindset. Right. Uh, But about a week later, I ended up telling them on a car ride because I just couldn't live with it anymore. And I just said, you know, he's been harassing me and he touched me last week at the barbecue and that's why I took off. And I thought they would have my back. I thought there's no way they can deny this anymore. I'm, I'm telling them. Right. And they didn't deny it. But what they did say was that's what men like him do. And we just keep our mouths shut and we move on because there's nothing we can do. Right. Because that was their experience. Yep, exactly. And so again, like I finally, after 12 years of this abuse, had worked up to telling someone and nothing. It was, you know, my Not what fault you expected. Yeah. something is what it felt like. So then two years later, having grown up in this really rough neighborhood, My parents didn't want to leave me even at 17 alone in our house um, because there was a lot of, you know, gang activity. Our house was, you know, had bullet holes from drive-bys. People were frequently breaking in. We lived next door to a meth house. Like, it was not a good situation. So I understand they're not wanting me to be at home alone, but it would have been safer because they ended up sending me to stay with my uncle. My grandmother was dying at the time um, from Alzheimer's and other complications. So she was completely mm. out of it. So and I he remember, was still living with her? He was still living with her, um, probably in his mid-50s, I think, at this point. And so I just knew the entire night, like, oh, my God, it's going to happen again. I want to get out of here. But I also was so terrified of my family at that point mm. and their level of or their capacity for rage. 
that I was like, okay, I'm just going to risk it. I'm not a child anymore. Maybe he's not interested. It'll be okay. I'll get through it. And so that night he ended up just throwing on these like overtly sexual but not pornographic videos. And I just had this sinking feeling in my gut. And then um, as he had done many times in my childhood, kind of gave me some liquor, which I believe he probably laced with something because I just kind of went into this weird woozy have to go to bed right now um, phase. And I just remember laying, looking at the clock for hours, wondering when he was going to come into the room and finally started to fade off to sleep. And he did. So he came into the room and I attempted to just pretend I was completely passed out from sleep and the drugs and the alcohol, but I wasn't. And at one point he became aware of it. And this became really hard for me to process because I felt a lot of guilt around it in therapy, but it ultimately kind of has become an empowering moment for me, which was he was just about to rape me. And he just paused and told me, I know you're awake. You're going to do this or we're going to be here all night. And so he put me in this disgusting position of having to be in charge of my own abuse. And so I just, you know, kind of went along with it at the set, the time. Mm-hmm. And at a certain point was just like, well, <laughs> this, if I'm going to be stuck in this position, I don't know. Some, I don't know if it was Scarlet or some other part of me that was more protective and empowered was like, I'm going to throw him off kilter and I'm taking charge. Yeah. And so... I felt this intense shame because I kind of rolled him over and took a power position over him and just, I don't know, <laughs> everything I say is going to, because it's like, sounds awfully sexual in my head. I'm like, I blew his mind. No, don't say that. Um, but, you know. No, no, it's a really good thing to share because, because here's the thing. We, when we're in these terrible situations. And I've been in, I haven't, it's not the same situation, but I've been in a situation uh, multiple times where, where I thought to myself, I'm either going to get raped or I'm going to go along with this. And I was like, you know what, I'm just going to go along. And so, because that was easier and that made, that changed the power dynamic because someone was going to have the power, right? There's right. no, it, that's it. That's the way it was going to be. And you, and, and when you're, female in a, a, you know, a a weaker position in those situations, you're making survival decisions. Yep. That's it. And so you made a survival decision. It's his, it's him having the power. It's me having the power. Might as well be me. Yep, exactly. And I think this exact incident that I worked in with my therapist, I don't remember her exact words now. I know I have a post about them that I it happened almost exactly a year ago because it came up in my uh, like Facebook feed. Mm-hmm. And it was something along the lines of that young woman who survived this tragedy did the things she knew how to do to survive and to take power. And she sacrificed herself so that you could be here today. Mm-hmm. And our work is here to honor that sacrifice. And just it gave me this understanding of who I was as a person and the tenacity and the grit and the perseverance and the risks I was willing to take to ensure my survival against all odds. Yep. 
and it really allowed me to connect with her in a way that after that, our relationship just blossomed into this wonderful therapeutic relationship I look forward to as like my safe home twice a week. Were you ever using substances to to cope? I definitely was using substances to cope, um, particularly at this point. So to rewind a few months, I had this really great year at 16 where I was like, oh my God, my life's finally turning around. This is amazing. I have a loving, caring boyfriend. I finally have friends and people I can rely on. My life is going to be so good from here on out. Um, And then I had consensual sex for the first time in my life. And it was absolutely amazing and life-changing and affirming. And it filled me with so much hope. And what I didn't realize at the time is the, the guy I was dating wasn't such a great guy after all. And was also very charismatic and charming. And, you know, I fell for it again. And so he started to emotionally abuse me, um, which then led to physically abusing me. And ultimately, even if we'd start a consensual um, sexual act, if I changed my uh, mind when I was triggered, very understandably, from all of my severe childhood trauma, that, that wasn't acceptable to him. And being a little bit more grown, I had at least an awareness that I could daze myself out of the situation and not deal with it. So I started to drink and my parents were super religious, but people always gifted them alcohol, but they never touched it. And it like literally gathered dust in the cupboard. So it gave me this great access to years worth of booze to start numbing myself. Right. And then shortly before this incident at 17 with my uncle, I had um, dislocated my shoulder during swim team practice enough that it put me off swim team for the rest of the year in my senior year. But it gave me access to muscle relaxers and Vicodin, which I then essentially milked the injury for months and months and months after um, saying that it just wasn't healing and I needed more drugs so that I could be able to stay in this just numb state of not wanting to deal with this abusive boyfriend, the trauma with my uncle, and essentially all of this abuse that had started coming back to my mind around 14 or 15, which I had just mentally buried and wouldn't blacked out and wouldn't let come back up. And so I was trying to deal with all of my memories while dealing with this uncle and this boyfriend. And I just couldn't live with it at that point. And for me, the best option at the time, since I just wanted the pain to stop, was to numb out. Yeah, I think that's a very common. And it's, you know, one thing we talk about when, you know, I'm in in recovery from drugs and alcohol and um, and several other things, I suppose. Um, and, uh, from it all, baby, I'm, I'm in recovery from, <laughs> from life. And, yep. uh, and one of the things we talk about is how drugs and alcohol were a survival mechanism for me that worked at some point in my life. They were very, very valuable. They very much worked for me. As time went on, they became the problem. They became destructive, right? They, they, that set in, but in the, be- in the, in the beginning, I needed something and they serve that purpose. And it sounds to me very much like 
that's what was going on for you was this was I mean, this was life saving, right? This was this was a survival technique to get through it. Same with dissociation, say, you know, say all the different same with fantasy, all these different things. They are coping mechanisms. And if you don't have someone, I mean, even if you do, right? But if you don't have someone teaching you like, hey, when you are triggered, when you have trauma, when this happens, this is how you handle it. You're going to find a way to handle it. And we are going to naturally be averse to pain. So we're going to try to find something to anesthetize what's happening. That's a, It's just a normal reaction to those things. And what you did later on in life was you sought out a way to unpack all of this insane trauma. And you have been doing that and sharing your journey. And it's just, I mean, jaw-dropping what you've been able to do and where you've been able. And you've, you're really doing the work. I mean, I see it. I hear it in, in what you're writing. What has that been like for you? What Tell us about, tell us about recovery from this and, and tell us about some of your challenges and things you, and then other things you've overcome. Sure. So about two years ago, I just kind of had enough. I had never deal, dealt with all this trauma we talked about, including the abuse with my boyfriend that ultimately led into him breaking into my home and sexually assaulting me at knife point, ending up pregnant from my uncle, um, had hitting this dark spot of suicide and an actual attempt in high school that I very luckily survived. And once I got through high school, I just packed all that stuff down, compartmentalized it, and moved on with my life and thought, I'm going to be okay. It's fine. I survived. Until life got a little too stressful again for me. And so around the time I was 31, I was diagnosed with a congenital lifelong chronic illness that has led to daily severe pain, inability to use muscles and nerves and just all this horrific physical physicality that started to bring back up the trauma. Um, my husband and I miscarried our third child and it was, it was just too much for me. And I at this time was started coping by working 120 hours a week. I like, mm. I utilized my overachiever status to just work so much. It became my drug on top of overeating. And I wore my body out and I just couldn't live with it anymore. And I remember being like, you know what? It started with some suicidal ideation, which I think a lot of people go through. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, I know this is normal. It's fine. I'm going to work through this. I did it in college. I'm totally fine. But then when I started withdrawing from my husband and withdrawing from my friends and starting to think, and I started thinking about how am I going to do this? When am I going to do this? I knew that was a bad sign. I knew that was the, I need to get help now, or I'm going to make a decision that I'm not even going to live to regret. And I know mm -hmm. in my heart, all of these people love me, but I'm just not capable of feeling it because yeah. of everything I've went through and I can't accept it and I don't think I'm worth it. And so that ultimately pushed me to calling my insurance company and saying, I don't know how to adult. I really need you to help me adult right now. How do I get a therapist? And um, luckily, you. <laughs> they like gave me this list of providers and I was like, 
I just need someone, even if it's not the right one right now, I just need to find someone to get me through six weeks. I just got to commit to six weeks because that's more therapy than I've ever attempted to do before. And luckily I went into this office as a super shy person who started out probably with just like, yeah, no, yeah, that happened. <laughs> you know, like yes, no, the- yes. <laughs> Like staring at the floor, Mm -hmm. wanting to get out of of there, like physically, like tapping my foot and shaking the whole session. But I was seen and I was heard and she just was filled with such compassion for me that I was like, okay, I can keep doing this. I just got to keep doing this. And so she just took a lot of time getting to know me and wanted to make sure that I was comfortable before we started really processing any trauma. Yeah, absolutely. That really like gave me this solid foundation of faith in her, even if I didn't quite have the trust yet, which is so freaking understandable. And so she just gave me some therapy homework. And as a classic overachiever, a student, I was like, hell yeah, I love homework. Oh, yeah. And so, like, I show up with these lists and lists and lists of pages, and she's just so in awe of it. And I'm like, oh, my God, someone's capable of being in awe of me? This is so weird. I love it. I'm addicted. (laughs) Um, So I think that, like, basic need of needing to be seen and validated and have some sense of affection in my life, um, apart from my husband, who I love dearly, and he was always in the background, poor guy. But... It allowed me to at first engage because I was getting this need met. And then it's grown so much deeper Um, because we talked about treatment options. And she had asked me, well, have you ever heard of EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing? And I was like, ironically, that's actually why I picked you is because I saw that you had this training and certification and I'm interested in it and I'm willing to give it a go. So after we kind of got through this rough period at work, she was like, you ready to give it a go? And I'm like, all right, let's do this like waving finger magic eye stuff I've read about on the internet and Pinterest. I mean, what's it going to hurt at this point? And it was super weird at first because I'm like, I can't even concentrate. How the hell am I supposed to look at these fingers and think about my feelings and like recall images and then share this stuff with you? And it was really hard at first, but it got easier every session. EMDR is magic. Okay. Can we just get on? Can you get on my level? Like EMDR <laughs> trauma is magic. It really is. It, it's so weird. It's so weird. And the first couple of times that I did it, I was like, I wasn't ready. I didn't really like it was so weird that I was still like, this is weird. You know, I kept like you're thinking about it being weird. Like I couldn't I couldn't I, I, I couldn't access my trauma because I was yes. like, what is happening right now? This is so ridiculous. Right. Yes. And then I finally got to a place where I could access my trauma. I was like, all right, I'm going to give this like the good college try. Yes. And I'm telling you that the intrusive thoughts and the like obsession around it and that that it went away. Uh-huh. It was so crazy. And I hear the story all the time about, about this trauma work. It's so cool. It's just such – and I'm so happy that you 
knew about it, found out about it, were willing to do it because I think a lot of people are like, this is weird and I don't know what's going on, you know? And so they don't do it, but I'm, it's just so cool. And you're writing. So what, you know, sometimes people ask about like what the work is, like what is trauma work, right? Like what is actually done in the session? Can you tell us a little bit about some of these assignments? Like what what was the writing and why was it so valuable for you to put that pen to paper, you know, whatever, to write on the computer? Why was it, what's the value in that? Because what would you, t- okay, let me back up. What would you tell someone who was like, I'll get a journal. I don't need a therapist and I'll just write down, you know, my life story. Like what, how do you explain to someone what this process has done for you? Sure. I'm going to do my best. So I think on one hand, the therapy in and of itself is phenomenal. And it's a great two hours of my week. It's the best investment I've ever made. But it's only two hours of my week. Right. And I have to be able to practice that. And the other, I can't do math. So whatever number of hours there are in a week, <laughs> um, be able to actually make a change for myself. Because ultimately, it's about me making the choice to change and utilizing this wonderfully educated, talented, compassionate individual to help me learn how to implement that. So I think having that guidance of someone who knows what questions to ask to guide me down a path of self-discovery that I so lost in trauma might not even have capacity to think about. And maybe not be able to find on the internet because there's a lot of great resources that you can write about, you know, in journal prompts, but they aren't geared towards you and your situation Mm. and your circumstances and Mm. who you are as a human being. What was one of the most profound journal prompts that she had you do that was specific to you? Oh, my God. I know. You can take a second to think about it. Okay. I think so. This was a super simple one but it opened up a door for me was that I really had this picture in my head, having talked to no one about their own life story or mine, that this was just people's lives and this was completely normal and it wasn't that bad. And so one of the first tasks she gave me was to create a trauma timeline. And so she gave me, she's like, you can put it on a poster, you can paint it out, you can write a poem, you can put it in a like timeline, you know, do you boo boo. Um, and so <laughs> I love you. my voice matters. I love it. Uh, but, um, so I ended up just sitting down and for like weeks, I would just write in this journal, everything that happened. And it gave me this realization of, oh, maybe this actually is kind of a big deal in my life and was able to take that in and start to talk about it and realize, and I'm still kind of coming to this conclusion that I have never had goals or dreams or hope because I always thought I was going to die the next day. And so she gave me this kind of assignment to just come up with you know, my initial goals for therapy. And I came in and I was like, I got nothing. I don't know how to do goals. And so she was able to have the capacity to say, okay, let's slow down a little bit. And, you know, what would your ideal life look like in five years? Let's say you we work and we do this therapy work together, or you find someone who's better suited and you do this work together. What is your life going to look like in five years? And which so, is something, which is something you had never thought about? 
No, I had literally never thought but about it. What about your master's degree? <laughs> I know, right? This is so sad. Um, so in my, my family, it was like, you're going to college. You don't have a choice. So I was like, well, I don't really want to go to college, but I guess I'm going to college because that's what I have to do because my parents say so. So I was passionate about criminology and wanted to help people like me. Mm-hmm. So I went and got my associate's degree in criminology, but didn't have the greatest advisor. So at the end of my two years, they're like, oh, yeah, 45 of your credits don't transfer your, So you're going to have to oh. stay in college another year. And I was <sighs> like, uh, hell no, I didn't want to be here two years. <laughs> like, I'm not doing that. What are my options? And so they're like, well, there's this like liberal arts college, 45 minutes down the freeway. They're super hippie. They don't do grades. Like they'll take your credits. And I was like, I don't even care. Just send me there. Whatever. It's fine. I'll get my bachelor's. I have no goals. They don't have specific degrees. So that's going to be perfect for me. (laughs) I can just go take random classes and get a degree and my life's going to magically fix itself. And so once I got there... The education was just so absolutely different than anything I'd experienced. But I was like, uh, maybe I could be a teacher. I don't have any plans in life. So, yeah, let's just do that. So I ended up getting my bachelor's in like a dual endorsement in English language arts and math. And my dad was like, well, you're smart. You should get your master's. And I'm like, yes, sir. So I apply for a master's program because I'm like, I have no plan of getting a job. I don't know what I'm going to do in my life. This will give me two more years to like get my stuff together. So I end up getting my master's in teaching. And it was a place where I really could excel because of that sort of hard work overachiever, keep myself super busy and life's not going to have any problems. Um, And so then I entered this profession of teaching, which was fabulous. And I was really good at it, but my heart was so big. I just felt like I was never, ever doing students justice. And Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, I I couldn't live with it. So ended up staying within the field of education, but dropped out of teaching uh, because I just was like, this is too big of a goal. I can't do this. I I don't know how to exist being myself almost. Hmm. Yeah, it was, it was super challenging. But now I'm in this super amazing school where I work as an operations manager for an online kindergarten through 12th grade public school, where I still get to be passionate about making sure students are being served well so that they can have access to education and caring adults, you know, and develop goals and passions with their own life that I never felt I had the opportunity to But without all that pressure that I feel, I'm going to personally let some child down like I was let down. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. That's amazing. I mean, it's so... I love having people on this podcast who have these deep experiences and, and, you know, deep dark is, is, is part of it. And then bringing, finding a way out, you know, it's the name of the podcast is right. The courage to change. And that's the truth, right? It takes courage. It takes, you're afraid of that change. And it's interesting listening to you talk about not having the goals. What I'm thinking to myself is, well, she grew up in a situation where her brain actually wired to tell herself that this could be her last day every single day. And of course that carries on through 
adulthood because that piece of you, it's again, it's it's what we talk about. It's the survival piece of us. And I, I talked about this in my story, which was you don't know what you're capable of until you're in a situation where you believe that it's 100% about survival. It is it is a piece of you that that most people don't come in deep contact with and what you're capable of or what happens to you as a human just that's stuff that is it's stuff that carries on from childhood into adulthood and it and it causes some of those maladapted behaviors. So tell us about your CPTSD Chronicles. What's that all about? That's, I mean, that's how I found you, right? Is that yeah. you, you write about your experiences and, and your recovery? How many people have reached out to you? How like, tell us about this. Tell us a bit about, more about your, your recovery journey. Awesome. I'm super excited. I, so this came about from a very kind of traumatic incident, incident in and of itself. So I, oh my God, I have so many levels of detail. I'm just going to go for it. So I'm in this job now where I have this amazing supervisor who saw who I was as a person long before I ever did. Uh, He's been like decades of teaching, gone into administration, and he saw something in me in my first couple months as a temp in his office that he's like, we need to get her doing greater work. And he's always pushed me to excel and given me goals and helped me discover myself and so I've really grown. I, I think I counted it yesterday because I was just accepted into this like top eight in the company program. Yay for me the other day. Congratulations. So That's I, amazing. I, it's one of my first goals and I achieved it. So it's been super I love exciting. It. So he I, was one of the first people in my life aside from my husband to ever tell me he was proud of me. And so I've just flourished in my workplace. Which Girlfriend, has, I'm proud of you. Thank you. Which I has, yelled that. Sorry. Sorry, CK. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm a boo-boo. I am proud of you. Thank you, my friend. So it's led me to these really wonderful opportunities to travel all over the U.S. and participate in committees um, to help improve student engagement and learning, mm. which is awesome. And I'm like getting to achieve these goals now for the first time in my life. But unfortunately... On one of those events, we were flying out of, um, I think, Boise, and it was a very tiny airport in comparison to, you know, my Seattle International Airport that I'm used to. And I don't know if, like, my conspiracy theory self got flagged on some list, but I'm always the one pulled aside. Um, In this incident, they ended up doing a very, very aggressive pat-down. Mm. And I was just starting to do the EMDR work and was super raw at the time. And it just was completely triggering in and of itself. But then they didn't really ask me permission for anything. And it ended up with them like pulling down my pants and pulling up my shirt and exposing my like my chest and my underwear and my very generous uh, middle section to the entire airport. And I just kind of like froze and was in a panic And that wasn't good enough. And so they pulled me into another room to do a complete strip search. I literally don't have words again. So I like, I survived this. Like they didn't do anything beyond this level of intrusiveness, but it was just so triggering. I ended up going into the restroom at the airport, sitting on a toilet. Luckily, my therapist had 
in one of my early sessions was like, I know it sounds weird and childish, but you need to get a stuffed animal. And I was like, okay, whatever. But I ended up bringing this stuffed animal that I had kind of grown to, you know, self soothe Mm -hmm. with me. And I was so glad I have it because I swear it was the only reason I didn't die of hyperventilation in that airport. And I was just so mad about this incident that I was like, I need a platform to talk about these things. Like I'm done with this. I need someone to hear this story. I'm starting to get strong enough to talk about my journey. Like it brought up all these feelings of myself as being so alone in childhood and having no resources and no one to turn to. And I didn't Mm -hmm. know anyone like me. And I was like, I just want to put my voice out there. Uh, One, a little bit to chronicle for myself to refer back to, but also if someone else on this planet, even just one person can read this and feel less alone, I'm starting to get teary eyed that it would serve a greater purpose. And so I ended up my very first post is about that TSA incident. And I thought I can make this into something much more meaningful. I'm going to make this thing that happened to me that was super rough into something beautiful because that's the power of therapy. So I decided I'm super into this idea of authenticity And I did my master's research on authentic teaching practices. And I just, I know the research of being a genuine human being who speaks to real subjects, does it earnestly and doesn't shy away from anything. And I thought that's what I'm going to do with my life. Even if I don't make money off of it, this, this is my passion. And I had the gateway of therapy and tracking my therapy and talking about it honestly through this Instagram account to help show others that, yeah, it is, it is scary work and it's terrifying to um, be vulnerable with another human person when you go through any sort of trauma or anything you judge yourself for, feel ashamed about. But it is absolutely plausible, no matter how dark it gets, to find the right person to do the work with and to recover from. And I just want other people to be able to read that and feel it and see someone who's gone through just the severe emotional abuse, abandonment, neglect, sexual abuse, like the, the whole gamut who's relied on drugs and alcohol and overeating and overworking and to find capacity within that world of therapy and self-exploration and vulnerability to heal And so that's kind of why I've taken to Instagram. And I thought, "Eh, like, I'm an okay writer, but eh, like, who's you're a great writer? (laughs) Yeah, girlfriend, I'm just gonna come out and say it. That's those are the facts. It's true. I do need people to remind me sometimes. It's it's hard for I'm still learning to accept compliments, but we're working on it. You're doing great. Um. So. I thought, eh, maybe I'll get a few likes. It's fine. I'm just going to do this for myself. I'm not going to be committed to like getting followers or promoting myself or anything like that. But I think just that me being real and being willing to share like literally my raw work, like you see it. Oh, yeah. Like come home from therapy. I write down verbatim stuff that happened in session, all of my thoughts, things I withheld and was unwilling to talk to my therapist about all of my kind of discoveries and our discussions. 
all the work I do in my very happy, mental, peaceful place to survive. And I just put it out there unfiltered for everybody to read. Yes, and you I do. Feel, and it's like, so cool. And so now probably on a weekly basis, I probably have three to five people um, who are connecting with me with their with their stories and reaching mm-hmm. out and thanking me. And it's been so incredibly empowering for me, which sounds a little self-serving, but I've never been kind of self-focused in my life. So I just have to be mindfully self-compassioned that it's okay to think positive things about myself and recognize yeah. my hard work. And at the same time, I remember that I'm able to connect with them and help them and give feedback and not necessarily advice, but just, you know, I've made a number of connections with really wonderful people on Instagram who are going through similar struggles that I never would have known about. And it's actually helped me to make genuine human connections for one of the first times in my life of really just having this platform to be myself and to accept others for exactly who they are as well. Yeah. That's so cool. That's so cool. Have you had the experience of someone else realizing that they were a victim of sex trafficking? For the first time this week, I did have someone um, reach out about it and kind of the similar conversation we just had earlier in the cast about, oh my God, I didn't realize this was trafficking, but this happened to me too. And I thought I was the only one. Mm. And, you know, the, it's just so good not to be alone, which is, you know, a thing I hear quite often, which for me really is kind of at the heart of it. And at the same time, I always think to myself, even as a survivor who's learning to thrive, it's so hard to know what to say to another human being who has been through such atrocities. And I think for me, that's kind of the gateway comment of opening doors because, there just aren't words. And there's just, I think, mindfully sitting together through it. Absolutely. I love that. And and you're so, what I enjoy about listening to you is, is you're obviously very intelligent and, and poetic and you understand the process and you do an amazing job of describing the process of recovery, you know, from, from everything. And I just love that. I think it's so important. I don't think people understand what goes on in the room between the therapist and the client and why that's relevant to them. Why telling your story is relevant. What's that going to do? And hearing about your experience and having you actually show the writing. I mean, that is so, it, I, I saw it. It was like, she's, this is, this is real. This is real. I mean, I, I know the difference between edited and real. This is, <laughs> this is the real deal, people. And you just, you're just, you're so deep and committed to the work. And I think it's amazing and beautiful and admirable. And you're going to help a lot of people. And and what I, what I want to see is you start to help those of us who don't know what sex trafficking looks like, who don't know, you know, to be able to A, spot it or reach out or help or contribute and B, you know, talking about it and bringing that awareness because you have brought that awareness to my life and, and our listeners are now going to have that awareness. And I want people to understand why this stuff happens in our communities because we don't give it that name. And and there's power in naming something, right? I, I, you, you probably had that experience like, oh, I'm going to, there's power in giving it a name. 
I absolutely agree. I've had so many experiences where someone's always like, it's not about the letters, you know, Mm -hmm. which I totally get because in some way you don't want your letters to be your identity. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, thinking about having, you know, complex trauma makes me go, oh, I'm not just this weird, you know, socially withdrawn freak who doesn't have emotions or who, if she only has emotions, has, you know, anger outbursts. And it'll let me go, oh, no, this is just a symptom of trauma. It's not who I am, but it's able to give me something to identify behaviors in myself with. Mm. What makes your trauma complex? So for me, I think what makes it complex is the number of individuals who have had access to abuse me over my life um, because it wasn't just my mother's brother. Um, The aunt who found us, her husband also sexually abused me over the summer when I, you know, would go to visit my uncle would rope in cousins who would end up abusing me. He would sell me to individuals, you know, at amusement parks and fairs. And eventually it got so bad, he would even bring them to my grandmother's house. You know, then that led to me being vulnerable, I guess. And, you know, um, predators being able to pick out a vulnerable child. I didn't necessarily talk about this in the history portion of my timeline, but I was also sexually assaulted by a youth pastor slash teacher from my religious school and church when I was in middle school. And, you know, of course the boyfriend. So there's all this layer of numbers of people making it Mm -hmm. complex as well as the length of time in which it occurred over 14 years. Right. Okay. Um, I think the level of violence and like literally being caged at some points or waterboarded or tied up or starved off, you know, all these just horrible things that happened, I think, make it complex. And then there's this sort of layer underneath of all of this was able to happen because of the abandonment uh, by my parents and the emotional neglect. Like they always made sure we had food and shelter and we were in a good school And tried to raise us with morals and did everything that they thought they needed to do. But there was this complete emotional absence that just enabled all of it, taking it to another layer of intenseness and complexity. Yeah. Thank you for explaining that. I think um, most people have heard of PTSD, but I don't think most people have heard of complex PTSD. So it's helpful to have that idea. What do you want people to know who have been through trauma who don't know where to start? Ooh, that's a great question. Yes, I win. You do win. You win that life. <laughs> <laughs> I think I would like people to know that there are resources available for everyone. And you just have to either find that resource for yourself or be super brave and courageous. And even if it's really uncomfortable, make a life-changing decision to reach out to even one person. You might have one iota of trust in to find those resources for you if you're not able to find them yourself. 
And, you know, that can look different for everybody. Therapy, I think, is a great resource and it works for me. But and you, you called me. your insurance company yep, to find a provider. So that's an option. There, there's always an 800 number on your insurance card that you can call and ask, right? right? Yep. And I know the wonderful world of the internet is available. Yep. And at the same time, I think people need to be ready for that because I tried therapy multiple times before and it was never effective for me because I just wasn't ready. And, you know, until that time, I found ways to cope, you know, through imagination or through writing or drawing. And that helped get me to a place where I was able to at least find people to help me get resources Yeah, to be able to engage uh, in therapy. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think the the moral of the story is don't stop trying. It may not work this time. You may not be ready this time, but the next time you might be ready. So keep keep trying. And would you, what about, you know, if listeners are considering doing a trauma timeline, do you suggest doing that? It depends. I think it depends on the individual. If a person's able to kind of mindfully practice that timeline activity, and not feel like, and I'm guilty of this, so this isn't a judgment at all. But if you find yourself being a person who tends to kind of get sucked in and stuck in a dark place mm. whenever you access your trauma, I think doing that without a backup plan yeah, might not be the way to go. Okay. But yeah, I, think, I, I agree you know, with that. Having someone the to support. reach out to you know, when things come up and you're writing it down and you need someone to talk to, whether that's, you know, a friend or a partner or a therapist, I think is fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. I think the biggest thing is that we can't do this alone. It's all about the connection. It's all about the community. It's all about shining a bright light on those dark places and taking them out of our closets. And, you know, we bury things alive and they grow and they don't go away. And we think they're gone, but they're not gone. They're they're always there. The body remembers. So I, I just love your story. I love your recovery. And I think you are a tremendous human being. And I know that you are going to continue to inspire people and do great things with your experience, that your experience is going to turn out to be your an asset for you, not a liability. And so I really look forward to watching that happen and watching you become a wonderful, amazing advocate for other people in this world. And I'm, I'm, I'm pleased. I am grateful to know you. So thank you so much for coming on and being vulnerable and sharing your story. And I am looking forward to how it all plays out. Thank you, Ashley. I am so appreciative to be able to share my story here. And I've, uh, genuinely appreciated this hour together and being able to kind of dig in, share, and hopefully someone somewhere will feel less alone and maybe be inspired like others to reach out and heal. Even if, you know, that is reaching out to me, which I always welcome. If you have no one, but you need someone and you hear this, please feel free to reach out to me. I will get back to you because I know what it's like to be that person who has no one who just needs a smile or 
recognition or something simple. And I think that's the beauty of your podcast. Like when you reached out to me on Instagram, I just started getting into podcasts thanks to my husband. And I um, downloaded every episode and listened to them on this flight for work to and from California. And to just hear people's stories that sounded similar to mine, even if slightly different, is so incredibly powerful. And I yeah. just I thank you for the wonderful work you're doing. Well, thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. Um, I'm very passionate about trauma recovery and our company, Lion Rock Recovery. We are starting a trauma track. And the EMDR that I have been doing uh, is actually done online through video conference, believe it or not. And it's it's been more, for me, it's been more successful than the in-person, which is weird, mm-hmm. but it's, it's, it's true. Yep. It's, it's just the reality of the situation. And so that's another resource of people, you know, if people don't know, don't want to tell anybody about it or whatever, check out lionrockrecovery.com and we can help you find either a therapist or resources or check out the trauma track or, or point you in the right direction towards local resources. And I can always get you in touch with Amy as well. So thanks again, Amy. Thanks, Ashley. The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast, would like to thank our sponsor, Lion Rock Recovery, for their support. Lion Rock Recovery provides online substance abuse counseling where you can get help from the privacy of your own home. For more information, visit www.lionrockrecovery.com backslash podcast. Subscribe and join our podcast community to hear amazing stories of courage and transformation. We are so grateful to our listeners and hope that you will engage with us. Please email us comments, questions, anything you want to share with us, how this podcast has affected you. Our email address is podcast at lionrockrecovery.com. We want to hear from you. 